Hey team, welcome back and welcome to part four in our special series on corporate transitions. In this space, we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path of practice ownership. As we've discussed, sometimes ownership leads to a transition that isn't to a private buyer. How do these transitions work? What should I expect? Why would I do it? Why wouldn't I do it? In this special four-part series, we have tackled the corporate sale and all the things you need to know to approach those in an educated and armed with a facts way. Well, welcome to the final installment of our four-part series on corporate transitions. Quick recap of where we have been. On part one, we covered some big questions, including why and are you ready? More tackling your personal world and ask what questions to consider to ensure that you are prepared for the process because it's a big one. In part two, we discussed the deal basics, who the key players are, what structures might exist, and some key terminology we've used throughout. In part three, we talked about maximizing the value both financially and other terms, how to get the most out of your practice in general, especially as it relates to looking towards transition. If you missed any of these critical pieces, please go back, start there, and then rejoin us here in this final part. But for those of you who are all caught up, welcome back. And today, I am joined again by the Mr. Brett Pierce. How are you today, kind sir? Good to be here, ma'am. Lovely. And, you know, no introduction necessary, but Mr. Charles Loretto, welcome back. We are going to talk today, Charles clearly knows all this, but Brett and I are going to try to lead you on this journey of what happens when you find a buyer. This is what Brett and I are doing daily, helping these clients as they navigate this corporate transition world. And we have talked up to this point of how to prepare and what to do and how to maximize value. But in this final installment, we want to show you how to get the deal done. What is negotiable? When do we negotiate these pieces? And what do we need to be aware of that is negotiable? So let's start there. But one more reminder before we get going, this is a long process, right? This corporate transition process is long. And I did this in the deal, but I want to kind of give us a one more refresher as we kind of close this out. It's a long process. It can take six to 12 months. I'm sure it can happen more quickly. But for most of you listening, if you embark on this journey, it's going to take you six to 12 months from when you kind of start making that decision. First is that interest, right? We talked about this in part one. It's the interest of what's happening and why do I want to do this and and letting Brett and I learn your story and understand why and are your expectations and, you know, mesh with reality and what do you want and what do you need to make sure that this is going to be a good fit for you. And reminder that oftentimes we say no more than we say yes. And I think a lot of clients really value that and what we provide to them in that piece of it. But let's say you're a yes, we're going to clean up your financials. We're going to normalize it. We're going to pull out all the profit. We're going to figure out where and what this opportunity looks like for a buyer and start to fine tune who a good group of buyers will be for you based on what you want and based on your needs and based on what your practice and cash flows look like. Then once we've cleaned up those financials, gathered all of the documents financially and operationally and had those interviews with you, we are going to pull on all of our relationships and buyers in the market and figure out what buyer works for you, what might be a good fit, and we're going to shop your deal, right? We're going to start that process of trying to get you the best deal possible that fits what you need and what you want and who is that best partner for you. At that point, we start to get some interest, right? And whether it's one or two or five, we get interest and we call that kind of the deal presentation. That's us presenting the deal and those buyers expressing interest. And that's where we're going to start our discussion today because that's the point where we start some negotiations, right? And whether it's negotiating, facilitating the communications, 
we're really setting the expectation of what you as a client are looking for in a deal and allowing that to kind of guide what buyers were looking at. That is all part of the negotiation. And as we talked about in the deal and part two, there's a lot of levers that we can pull here and a lot of things that kind of go into this. And so we're going to focus in today on those negotiation points and how they work. And so first up, let's talk about what things like super high level, and then we'll kind of dive in here in a moment, but what's super high level, what are the pieces of these deals that can be negotiated and are negotiated? So this is my favorite part. We got through the, are you ready? Are you prepared to sell? Do you understand what it looks like? Do you understand this transition process? And we've gained interest from a lot of different people, from a lot of different buyers. You're ready. Everybody's excited. There's an entity here that wants you and that values what you've built. This is a cool part of the process. So the key parts of any of these deals are pretty much the same throughout all these deals. The key parts are the practice value. Like what is this practice worth? Like what's the overall value of this practice? And all the things I'm going to talk about after this all relate to how that practice value number has been determined. So it's the practice value, what's your total enterprise value of the business that you have built? What's your compensation structure? How much are you going to get paid? When are you going to get paid? How many different revenue streams do you have? Are you getting paid at all the different levels or as a percentage of your production, as a day rate? That's compensation structure is a big piece of that too. The equity position and the terms of the equity, like we talked about prior in these prior podcasts, every one of these deals has some form of equity involved where your cash up front and then the remainder is in an equity in the holding company or in your practice or in some way, that's a lengthy topic, but the equity position and the terms of that equity are incredibly important. And that's always a part of these deals. And then any other post-sale terms, like your work back, your earnouts the real estate behavior, your lease behavior, and any debt treatment, any debt behavior that needs to be analyzed. So those are the, the key parts of the deal, practice value, comp structure, equity position on the terms, and then any of the number of post-sale terms. Great. That's perfect. And so there's three kind of parts of the process, right? So we've got the deal presentation, and that's kind of where we start. And then we have letter of intent or purchase proposal. That's kind of the more formalized offer. And then we have the final legal documents. And there are negotiating points on those terms you just mentioned kind of across the board throughout those three steps. And remember those legal documents, those contracts, that's kind of our final step before we actually kind of pass the keys and get the funds wired. So let's focus in first on the deal presentation and the letter of intent and kind of what we negotiate there. Because those two things kind of go hand in hand, right? We've set the expectation oftentimes on what our expectations are on some of those pieces. But then we also have a letter of intent that kind of formalizes those terms. So let's start with that. What is kind of first and foremost, I guess, the value, kind of the multiple, right? That's kind of the easiest one to cover first and, you know, kind of take us from there. Yeah. So like you said, there are three pieces of this process, the deal, the letter of intent and the contract. And so in kind of weird metaphors, the weird metaphor world that I live in, the deal is basically the big rocks. The letter of intent is basically the pebbles, which is a little more in the detail. And the contract, we're basically throwing sand around at each other because we're really into the weeds and we're really into the fine-tuned details. So in terms of the deal, to review like the key parts of the deal, the first one we're talking about is the practice value. This is the biggest part of any of these negotiations. And this is kind of where a lot of our expertise comes into play. The total practice value, what is that? Okay, so that is basically determined Well, the total practice value is what your practice is worth monetarily. And that is determined by the calculation of your EBITDA, your true EBITDA, after we've gone through and sanitized the financials and added back everything. 
and then we multiply it by a practice multiple that the buyer and us kind of negotiate. So let's just say it's a five times multiple and your EBITDA is $500,000. That means your total practice value is $2.5 million in that case. That's how we arrive at that number. Like we've talked about before, there are sometimes standards for these EBITDA multiples through the industry, four to six to seven times is, is what we're seeing now on the common side. So if you have $500,000 in EBITDA, a five times multiple isn't uncommon. So your practice value would be $2.5 million in that case. Yep. And I think it's important to understand that there's two points of negotiation there. And it's not always just the multiple, right? It's not that you've been offered a four multiple and we're negotiating for five. It very much can be that if we feel like based on the offer that's given, the multiple is low. But more often than not, it's validating that they've calculated your EBITDA correctly, that they've taken into account all of the right ad backs that we agree on that number, right? Because that number, when we do this process in this, you know, at the beginning of this six to 12 month period is going to change, right? The calculation and kind of how they're calculating that is what matters because they're going to recalculate your EBITDA as we get closer to the close, right? So making sure that number is correct and that they've captured everything correctly is part of what our team does. And part of that negotiation of saying, no, you really need to add that back or, okay, we understand that piece. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's the multiple and the EBITDA. So that's two, that's kind of a very preliminary, very important first part. And then let's talk about next. Yeah. So don't fall in love with the multiple. You can't spin multiples. You spend money. Okay. You can't spend multiples. Like what is this practice worth in terms of total value? Multiples, the way that we get there, that's kind of the standard way that these firms get to that number. But let's not fall in love with the four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You can't spend it. You spend the money. You spend what the practice is worth. The number that matters is the practice value number. That's the number that matters to us, in addition to all these other things that we're going to talk about. And, and the second part of this is the compensation structure. So how are you going to get paid moving forward? In most cases, it's a percentage of your doctor production. It depends very much on specialty. If you are a GP or a prosthodontist, you're, you're going to get paid on a percentage of your production, typically. If you're an orthodontist, you could get a salary. You could get a day rate. All of these things are negotiable in this process. One, we need to make sure that you're still interested enough to work because you're getting paid enough. That's called de-risking for the buyer. And then also, you need to make sure that when you're calculating your compensation, you got to understand that the amount of money that you get paid directly affects your EBITDA. So basically when we review like what EBITDA means, it's basically what is left, how much profit is left in this practice after I pay all my expenses inclusive of the doctors that do the production. So by definition, the more that you get paid as a doctor, the lower your EBITDA will be. Granted, so a lot of our guys say, oh, then I don't want to get paid hardly anything at all to raise my EBITDA, to raise my practice value. Well, in some cases that does make sense, but a lot of times that is not really helping them. That makes the buyer a little bit nervous because you're going from getting paid $800,000 a year to $50,000 a year. You're not going to be too excited to get up and do the work. That's not going to be a negotiable term or a realistic outcome on that side. So your compensation matters a lot. And this is kind of where we go to work, understanding like how much can you get paid? Are there bonuses involved and how that affects your EBITDA, which affects your total practice value? So let's talk about another thing in this deal presentation and kind of understanding kind of what our expectations are of these buyers and kind of what might fit equity position and a client's willingness to hold that. Let's talk a little bit about that and kind of how that's negotiated or kind of what level of negotiation exists there. So this is where the magic show kind of comes into play with a lot of these corporate buyers and things. And, you know, you're going to be told that this equity that you have in this company is going to be worth X amount of money in the future. And it may be so. And, you know, you really got to understand the track record of the partner that you're coming into a deal term with. So just for ease of numbers, let's say you have a, um, a million dollar practice valuation. And 
and they're going to give you 70% of that cash up front. The remaining 30% is worth $300,000. And that $300,000 is effectively being invested in the company that you're partnering with. And so if you think of it in terms of I'm actually giving somebody $300,000 to invest for me, you probably have some questions and you probably want to understand how that equity is going to behave. You probably want to understand what's the track record of this guy or this group that I've given this money to. If somebody came to you and said, give me $300,000, I'm going to turn it into $1.5 million in five years, but don't ask me how I'm going to do it. And you can't look at my books. And if you don't give me $300,000, I'm going to get $300,000 from your neighbor and he's going to make the money and you're not. If that's the answer, then you need to run because that is not a good outcome for you. There's no way you're just giving away $300,000 to somebody without understanding, at least with some reasonable like study, that that equity is going to perform for you. And so to recap, you get 70% in cash. That's the actual money that you can do anything you want with. Then you get 30% in equity, which means it's basically a stock. You basically have a stock position in the mothership, the big private equity company. And then also you need to be able to negotiate the deal terms on how that equity behaves. When can I actually monetize this equity? Just like you can't spend multiples, you can't spend equity. What is that equity? How does it behave? And when can I take it out? Can I take it out in five years? Can I take it out in seven years? Can I take half of it out in three years and the remainder in five? Do I have to be employed still by the company? Do I have to be producing at the same level or my equity decreases in value? There are a hundred nuances to this equity position. And it's a very important piece of it. If it's 30% of your practice value is tied up in equity, one, when can I get it? Two, is it going to grow? And three, do I even trust these people to handle this equity for me? So this is a huge, huge part of it. We could talk for six hours about this equity and only cover 10% of it. But in general, they're effectively buying. If you think of it this way, you're buying stock in this company. Do you think this company is going to perform for you? And when can you liquidate slash monetize that equity position? Yep. 100% agree. Let's talk about a little bit about, unless you guys have more on this equity piece, let's talk a little bit about pullbacks and earnouts and kind of those other pieces of the puzzle that kind of go along with this, you know, can go along with equity, but sometimes they're just part of certain buyer structure. Brett, shed a little light on those terms and kind of how those can be negotiated and what the value can be there. Yeah. What does life look like after a transaction? What are these post-sale terms and how is your day governed? And what are the financial consequences, risks, and benefits of any kind of deal that you set up? And so the first thing that always comes out is like, it's your work back terms. How long have you agreed to work back for this buyer under an employment agreement? You will become an employee in almost every case of the purchaser, and you'll have an employment agreement. You'll have employment terms. Generally, you know, two to five years is kind of what they're going to ask for in terms of how much longer you're willing to work. So these are all negotiable things. These are all things that affect the risk of the buyer. If you say, I'm willing to give you five months, that's going to be less valuable than saying, I'm willing to give him five years. That's just how it works. So your work back terms are a key part of this, key thing worth negotiating. This is your life. This is what's happening post-sale. You are still a dentist. You are still a doctor. Whatever it is, you're still going to have to produce. So the second thing to consider is this earnout concept. So what is an earnout? Basically, an earnout is saying if certain things happen in the practice post sale, you will get cash for it. And so if I bought your practice, I'm the buyer, and I bought a two million dollar practice, and 12 months post close, the practice goes to 2.1 million. That's a benefit, and that's what we would consider kind of an earnout. And are you going to be compensated extra for that growth or not? And so these are things that are highly negotiable. Are you able to get better terms on this? We've 
renegotiated the earnouts on multiple occasions where the buyer is giving some sort of multiple on the practice growth. Like if you grow the practice by a hundred thousand bucks, we're going to give you two times that. We negotiate those numbers up and down all the time to figure out what those baselines are in terms of those earnouts. And the, the other thing, earnouts and holdbacks are those terms are kind of used interchangeably a lot of time. Earnout, I like to consider as kind of a bonus for producing and it's more of a positive number. So a bonus if the practice grows. A holdback is me saying, I'm buying your practice and your practice is a $2 million collections practice. I'm going to give you 80% of your upfront cash today and I'm going to hold back 20% of it, hoping that your $2 million practice remains a $2 million practice. Basically saying, if I buy your practice at $2 bucks, and then you go to sleep for six months after that, and the practice goes down to $1.5 million, I basically didn't buy what I thought I was buying. Therefore, I'm going to hold back some money to mitigate that risk. And if you don't perform, in almost every case, it's just you just have to do what you did the year before in almost every case. If you don't do that, then there's there's some money that's held back that you're not going to get. So it's basically protecting my investment that I'm buying what you say I'm buying and you're going to continue to produce like you did before, which is completely reasonable request. A lot of times they're not asking you to grow. They're just asking you that your $2 million practice remains a $2 million practice for 12 to 24 months, which in my opinion is completely reasonable. And if that happens, then you kind of receive that any money that was held back. This is a pretty common thing to do since COVID. Most of these practices are being valued at pre-COVID numbers. That's meaning the trailing 12 months on on February of 2020 to February 2019. Therefore, if I'm giving you the benefit of pre-COVID numbers in the money that I'm giving you and your practice value, you simply have to produce those numbers in 12 to 24 months post-sale, and then everything's going to be fine, and you'll get the total number in that transaction. So kind of a complicated concept in some ways, simple in other. And, and more, the way I like to think about it is a holdback is a penalty for not producing how you're supposed to, and an earnout is possibly a bonus for producing more than you were projecting. Yeah, and I like that comparison. I think the holdback to me is because of something that's not consistent in your practice historically, and a big thing of that is COVID, Right. But if your practice is already rebounded, right, and it's already back to the level, because we're coming up on now enough time passing since reopenings that that some practices, that's not an issue anymore. But if maybe you had something happen prior to COVID and, you know, so now on top of COVID, they it's just they can't get a really good picture. That's when those holdbacks are going to happen. When you said 12 to 24 months, I think that's what we're seeing. And that's the purpose of that type of holdback is to say, OK, you said this is what's going to happen. Prove it. And we'll give you 12 to 24 months to do that. Talk a little bit about, you know, because we've heard this too, like how often do you see three-year, five-year holdbacks? Like what length of holdback is kind of reasonable and kind of, can you think of any examples? I don't want to put you on the spot of like where a, a super long holdback might be appropriate. Yeah. So this kind of comes back to one of the things Charles was talking about in episode three. It's the consistency and the cleanliness and the organization of the financials. So the more of the picture that we can help them understand on the financial side, the less need and less necessity there will be for this holdback, this punitive thing if the practice doesn't perform. If we know full well that the last four years have been super consistent and the financials are there and all the doctors are on reasonable agreements and all the the processes are set up and all these things that we've been talking about are in place, I will argue that the holdback is not necessary. And these are points where we do negotiate these things. You know, if the practice is like that, I'm going to say, why do you need a holdback? Instead of a holdback, how about a bonus if the practice does better? We know the practice is going to do what it's been doing. It's been doing that for five years. And if it doesn't do that for five years, chances are it's your fault as a buyer for changing something. And that's where we go to bat for the buyer to say, look, 
this practice is consistent. Why are you tying up money like this that he could be using to invest or whatever for, for this 12-month period? Um, and to answer your question, Christy, if I ever saw a five-year holdback, I would set it on fire. That is way too long. I think 24 months is the most that I would ever agree to. There's just so many things that can change in the practice. There's so many things that the doctors, that the sellers can't control once they become a part of this. And if there's some market conditions or if the investors change their behavior, I don't want to be at risk on that for 24 months. That's also a long time for us to not have that cash in hand to put to work for us. Yeah, absolutely agree, Charles. It's key man risk is what I see it. You know, if you've got a orthodontist doing $4 million by themselves, I mean, that's key man risk. You can't, you know, that, that might be difficult to find another person that can do that or a super doctor that's doing all these procedures. And we're nervous about that associate doctor or two associate doctors that's going to eat up our uh, our margin. So as long as that can be proven out, I agree, 12 months is enough. And we're trying to mitigate that through this process, interviewing the buyers and even setting up that expectation with the sellers to say, hey, we may have a potential holdback in some of these offers because of your unique type of practice. We see it all the time with buyers buying into private practices. Could you have a young D4 that's just getting out? I mean, no bank wants to lend them a million bucks. So it's the same process. They're ner- the bank, the investor, you know, that's what the buyer, the, the person, the money behind the deal is nervous. And so they want a condition to put in there that, you know, reduces that risk. So to me, it's, it's, it's key man risk is what we're really talking about. Yep. Absolutely agree. What else have I missed? I know there's some, there's a lot of little things here, but we've talked about value. We've talked about the work back. We've talked about the hold back and earnouts and the equity structure. Is there anything here that you feel like any other pieces here before we move on from this section that we need to cover, Brett? Yeah, I think there's a couple other things and real estate behavior is one of them. So do you own the building and what are the lease terms that the buyer is going to kind of take over that lease? That's a big deal. A lot of the cases you've been paying yourself rent and now someone else is going to pay you rent. And that's kind of a cool moment for the building that you own. But what are those lease terms? And this is a meaningful amount of money over the five, seven, 10 year lease. How long is the lease? What are the terms of the lease? You know, how much in rent are they paying? What's the fair market value that we've agreed to? So if you're just lost in this, all I know about the transaction is the multiple Boy, there is all of this stuff that goes into that. I mean, this lease thing is worth a bunch of money in most of these cases. If you have a big old office and someone's taking over that lease, that is a huge amount of money. Now someone else is paying you instead of you paying yourself. Between the addbacks, the lease treatment, the holdbacks, and the earnouts, and the workback terms, and like what does life look like after sale? These are all things that nobody really talks about. Everybody's talking about the practice multiple and the total value. And the total value is probably the paramount item, but all of this stuff goes into it. And not all of this stuff is just like sunshine and fairy tales and like making you feel good. There's money behind this. This earnout option, this option, if your practice is on the uptick and the practice explodes after you transition, are you going to receive any of that additional benefit? Are we making sure that all the ad backs are in there? Are you making sure that like the lease terms are favorable to you? There's a lot to this. It's not just, I got seven times and $4 million, blah, blah, blah. There's so much more to it than that. And if you ask somebody about how their deal went and all they tell you is they got seven times and that's all they can tell you, they don't know what they're doing because there's so many other things to this. Brad, I, that last two minutes was probably of the four episodes, the best two minutes that we put down, baby. I mean, it was spot on. You have to understand the mechanics of this deal. And so you knocked it out of the park, brother. That was that was perfectly well. So that could be like a commercial for all four of these episodes. Just Brett talking, no intro. Just Let's just start, Brett. 
send it out to the masses and they'll just start watching, you know, all of these. So well said, brother. Just me yelling into a microphone by myself in a room. <laughs> Our daily lives work with you. Yes. It's like you yelling into a microphone. No, and the real estate. I'm so glad you remember that because it's such a big deal and it's so different in a corporate transition. If you're selling privately, that real estate, the buyer's going to buy it. That is not a long-term revenue stream. That is not something most people are going to want to sell that or a buyer's going to want to buy it. Um, but that's, I can't think of one buyer who buys real estate, at least any of the big ones that we're, we work with. So that's going to be a long-term agreement and a long-term revenue source for you. So something else to kind of talk about in your financial plan. Another thing we didn't talk about, but that's important to kind of go over is debt. If you have any existing debt in your practice, know that like in any other sale, it is often not included, right? That buyer is not going to buy or take over your debt. They are going, we're pricing the practice, that multiple, that EBITDA, the, that value that we're talking about, that is all free and clear of any debt. So that check that you get is going to have to satisfy that debt that you have. And so as you kind of enter into this process, I think we've mentioned it in another part, that debt is something that sometimes comes up after we've had a letter of intent and we kind of now are actually thinking that like, this is going to happen. And we're like, oh, what about the debt? When are they taking that over? I just bought this new machine or whatever it might be. No, they're not taking over your debt. That's your debt to handle post-close. And if you want them to take it over, it's impacting something else and, and probably not going to happen anyway. So those things are important there. Okay. So deal presentation and letter of intent, we set the expectation, we get these offers from either a purchaser that's the right one, you know, that kind of is the good fit or multiple, and we're kind of comparing and figuring out which, which offer is best. Once we make the decision and the determination that this is our buyer, they fit our needs financially, operationally, we've negotiated these terms, this is the deal that fits what we want the best. The next step is contract, right? It is formalizing all of the terms into legal agreements. In a private sale as a seller, I am responsible for getting an attorney and I say, okay, hey buyer, I'll draft these legal agreements and I provide them over. In a corporate transition, that is not how this works, right? These buyers are sophisticated, they're big, they have their own legal groups and their own legal documents. And they provide, once you have signed a letter of intent and said, hey, I am willing to move forward, the next kind of formal part of the process from a documentation and negotiation standpoint is the contract. Now, for some buyers, there's steps of diligence, and, and for most, I would say, for all, that happen in between the letter of intent and in between that contract, right? We have a letter of intent. We have some agreement. There is a lot of other diligence that happens in between there, right, of some do a quality of earnings, some just kind of take give us, you know, a list of 500 documents that they need, you know, whatever, each buyer is a little different, but there will be diligence in between that letter of intent and in between that legal doc phase. And it's the same things that we've covered, but in more detail, right? That part of the process is work for you, but it is not anything we're negotiating. It is really them proving out that what they have put forth in their letter of intent and what we have offered or accepted and what they have offered is what is going to be the final deal. Okay. Once that is done, the legal documents are presented over to you and to your team and us. And the goal of that, you know, and, and Brett's analogy uh, at the beginning of this series of the rocks and the pebbles and the sand, it is really the sand. The goal of those documents is hopefully there are not a ton of new terms, 
It's more figuring out does the words, right? And the hundred plus pages of words that you're going to see in those contracts, because they're super lengthy. Do those words really contain the spirit of what we've negotiated and agreed to? Because I will be the first to tell you legal documents create a little bit of anxiety for almost every client, private or corporate, because none of the emotion, none of the fluff is in those documents. They are black and white words that oftentimes have to cover the worst case scenario, right? Worst case scenario, here's what's going to happen if you walk away or I walk away or you don't meet whatever goals we've set. And it's not nice. Like it doesn't feel warm and fuzzy, but no legal document ever does. And so there is a little bit of hesitation and anxiety, I think, that comes in when we when certain clients get these legal docs because the reality of it sets in a little bit and kind of it doesn't feel like it felt when we were talking and working through all these other pieces. So when we get to this stage, an attorney is critical, right? A good attorney is critical, a good dental specific, clearly, and then also one who has experience with these corporate contracts, prompt, timely, educational, all the same things we would want in any other part of your team. We want that to be in the attorney resource that that's part of your team here. And there's two roles to play, right? Brett and I, if we're on your team, Brett and I are looking at these documents and saying, hey, here's what the documents say. And here's what we thought they would say based on what we've agreed. And why is there this discrepancy or explain how this works now? Because there's more detail here than there was prior. And you know, the letter of intent, that's one piece of it is making sure that deal is the same. The second piece of it is an attorney looking over it and making sure that if it wasn't the same, they can make it be the same, right? Legally and write the language that, that makes it the same. And then also explaining to you, What's the legal ramifications of what is in this document? This is a document that you're signing that's a big deal and you need to understand the document. You don't need to understand every be thou and art, but you need to understand, you know, have someone explain it to you in layman terms and say, this is what you're agreeing to here. And if you don't have that, I think that's a big miss and a big risk for you as a seller, because this is a relationship that you're going to be continuing in a corporate sale for a period of time. Brett? Yeah, the deal stage, we're talking about the terms. We're kind of getting general ideas. The letter of intent is effectively a one or two page document that just highlights these big rock deal terms that we've kind of talked about. And we all kind of agree to them and then it's, we kind of move forward. We're negotiating all of those points I talked about all along the way. Once you get to the contract stage, if you like this part, I think you're weird because this is like 500 pages. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. And it's all of this stuff, like if the world comes to an end, this is how we're going to have to behave together. So this part, it's not fun. It's absolutely necessary. It's our job with legal and with you to make sure that these documents say what we thought they would say, and they comply with the spirit of the agreement. So we control the deal. NDP controls the deal and are there every step of the way. But We are not your legal counsel. We want to hire legal counsel to make sure that those documents represent exactly what we agreed to. And like Christy said, at this stage in the game, it's not really a financial negotiation. It's more of a language negotiation. So here's what this term says, and it's a little more in favor of the buyer or it's more in favor of the seller. Let's make sure it's, it's equitable. As you can probably imagine, most contracts are written to benefit the person who writes the contract. So it's not the most fun part, but it's absolutely necessary. It gets us closer to that light at the end of the tunnel, though. It gets us closer to that big, giant, happy Gilmore check. And so just be ready that this part is coming. It takes some time. As you can imagine, 
millions of dollars don't come without a good amount of research. So just be ready for that. But we'll be with you every step of the way in addition to the legal counsel that you or we choose. And so getting the deal done, ultimately, right? It's the final part of the series, getting it done is the most critical part. I mean, every transition has its hurdles. They're going to have its moments where it's going to be a hard negotiation and or hard aligning expectations with reality. And our goal of this series and honestly of this podcast and of our organizations in general is making sure that you are knowledgeable to get from step one to step two to step three to close. And there are hard parts of that for each of you listening probably has a different hurdle that you're going to have to clear in order to get to that final step. But setting those expectations with reality and being knowledgeable about the process and what to expect, I think in our experience, the clients that we work with who have a good grasp on that and who are honest about what their opportunities and risk are and what their practice has to offer are the ones that are ultimately most successful in their negotiations and ultimately probably most happy post-sale too, because they know what to expect expect and they've gotten there. Charles, how does someone connect with us if they think this is a good fit for them or they think they need work or they have a hurdle in their why or in their are they ready or in their financials? How do they connect with us if they're ready for transition or know that transition is in their future? Well, I mean, first transition is in all of our futures. (laughs) I mean, there's just, you know, we won't be doing this decades from now and, and the person listening could be 30 40, 50, 60, 70. It's at some point you're not going to do what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So yeah, you need a plan. And so multiple ways, just our Cane Waters website, the info at Cane Waters, the info at National Placements, you know, it's just put it out there. You know, this is not a five minute conversation. This is uh, typically a hour interview prior to the call. We're asking for your financials, you know, tax returns, profit and loss. We want you to share with us your assets and liabilities so we can see that your picture is clear that this decision of transitioning to a private buyer and associate, or maybe in this example, a private equity buyer. And so it's important. We, we interview a client in DP to help them buy a business. We inter- interview the client, you know, to make sure it's going to be a good valuation plan. We interview the client at, at Cane Waters. We interview the client at Cane Waters, you know, is looking at to, they are going to manage their money. Brett interviews them, you know, at ED. We, we all, it's, it's important. We just don't take people off. It's the x-ray for the treatment plan, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's a free x-ray. You don't need to pay your first cleaning. It's a free x-ray. And we just want to make sure that we're both on the same page. So that's what a lot of the three of us do on, you know, a lot of these first calls. And uh, it's just kind of relationship building that takes some time. Your numbers kind of tell us a story, start setting expectations and timing to see where we fit. And it could be we take a break and start with King Waters. It could be we jump right in. It could be, hey, why don't we get EDA involved for to start lowering some of those expenses to add to that EBITDA. It's just, quite honestly, it's pretty fun for us. I know that we all enjoy this, but these interviews are what really keeps me going every day. Brett, I know you've already given us your best two minutes earlier in this episode, but any closing remarks before we sign off of this four-part series? Yeah, it's, it's all downhill from here for me, I guess. <laughs> so to reiterate some of Charles' point, this is all about you, the listener. This is all about, it's your life, it's your practice. The more we know about it, the more we can talk about it, the more we can understand what you want and to get you to all those goals, to get you there. All the stuff that we've talked about in these four podcasts, you don't have to memorize it. You don't have to be an expert in all of it. That's why we're here. You don't want me helping you fill a crown or put a, make a crown. And um, that's totally fine. So we're here to work on this together. 
between all the resources that we have, whether you engage with any of us or not, we're just here to kind of help you every step of the way and achieve the goals of a, of a transition. Or maybe the option is that you shouldn't transition right now. And that and that's fine, too. And we'll help you get to that decision as well. Yeah, I can see the three of us on a stage somewhere. A dental meeting that just wants the truth about, you know, all of this and no one's trying to sell them something. So no big decisions, big planning for sure. And big thoughts and, and just making sure that it's the right one. Because once you start the process, it is hard to kind of stop the wheels. So important to kind of be ready for it. So our team is here to help you and reach out. We're all here as a resource. We want you to be educated and we want you to be ready. Thanks again for listening. This was so fun. Don't forget to follow Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you like us, leave us a review. Until next time, friends, and thank you both for your time. Yeah, thank you guys. You did a wonderful job on this. Really appreciate all the energy and effort and pre-meetings that we had for this. So I'm really proud of both of you and all of us for, for what we're doing. So appreciate Thank you. Thanks, Brett.